0: The David Pakman Show at DavidPakman.com.
1: So as the votes continue to be counted in the 2020 presidential election, it is becoming more and more clear that Donald Trump really lost to Joe Biden by a substantial margin this election. We're now seeing a difference of three point eight percent in the popular vote. That's just over five point nine million votes. That's a margin that could easily exceed six million votes by the time All of the vote is counted. There there are still some states. New York state is one example. 17 percent of the vote in New York is yet to be counted. New York state, a state that Joe Biden won very easily. So as we get closer to 100 percent in New York and a few other states, we could be looking at a six million vote win for Joe Biden. Now with Georgia, not everybody has called Georgia yet. We're expecting news on Georgia today. Maybe by the time you listen to this show or watch today's clips, uh, Georgia will have been fully certified with Georgia. Joe Biden would end up with 306 electoral votes. That's the same number of electoral votes that Donald Trump had in 2016. Now, if you were one of the people who in 2016 said Trump won by a landslide when Trump had 306 electoral and lost the popular vote by nearly three million, if that was a landslide, As Trump has proclaimed, as Kellyanne Conway has proclaimed and many others, you have to concede that Biden winning with 306 and a six million vote margin has to be a doubly large landslide. Right now, to contextualize this, if we look at most votes received in history, no candidate ever received more votes than Joe Biden did this year other than Donald Trump also this year. Before that were Barack Obama's two elections in 2008 and 2012, followed by Hillary Clinton in 2016. Now, in terms of the popular vote margin of victory, Joe Biden's victory by nearly six million this year is the 15th largest out of fifty nine presidential elections. So in the top quarter of popular vote margins, certainly up there. Nowhere near the size of some of the landslide victories we've seen Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan's wins, for example, in 1972 and 1984. Those were by 17 and 16 million votes, respectively. Not nearly that big, but it is a very solid win. And it comes at a time when the idea of a mandate and the idea of recognizing that your opponent won and now gets to govern, that idea has gone in the trash. And yet that's not what we are actually hearing at this point in time. And of course, when Joe Biden is sworn in as president, Republicans aren't going to defer to Joe Biden as if he had a mandate. I'm expecting some of the biggest, most vile obstruction from Republicans that we will see um, uh, uh, for, for a long time. I think it will be worse than under Barack Obama's presidency even. And there's a real question as to whether Joe Biden will even get to govern, I think that what Joe Biden will get to do, he will have the privilege of dealing with Republican obstruction for the next however many years. And the real reward that Joe Biden gets is going to be cleaning up Donald Trump's messes. And at this point, as Donald Trump has completely evaporated, he's he's gone with the wind, so to speak. Nobody's seen Trump for weeks at this point other than the leaf ring ceremony and briefly taking credit for vaccines. Uh, This is why so much is riding on the two upcoming Senate runoffs in Georgia. Biden will be cleaning up big messes from Donald Trump and his ability to do it will be greatly impacted by whether Democrats control the Senate or not. Now, what's going on in Georgia? Very tight. Both races in Georgia are winnable, but they are very tight. You've got the incumbent uh, Kelly Loeffler against Raphael Warnock race. That one right now, according to the latest polls we've received this week, it's forty nine to forty eight in Warnock's favor, three percent undecided. What does that mean? It means it's a tie. That's that's how we have to operate. The incumbent Republican David Perdue versus Democratic challenger John Ossoff race. It's currently forty nine forty nine with two percent undecided. It's a tie. These races are winnable. But we have to get involved in them. So let's actually go through what we can do. We're going to be talking about these races quite a bit. I will be covering debates if there are any. It seems David Perdue has already turned down participating in debates against John Ossoff. We will be covering live results on January five. We're taking these two races very seriously. If you live in Georgia, you must register by December 7th. Uh, As long as you will be 18 years old by January five, you can register to vote if you're 17 right now, but you will turn 18 by January 5th. You can register to vote right now. We're linking uh, in the description to the YouTube clip uh, for where you uh, sign up and register to vote in Georgia. Now, early voting starts December 14th. You can request absentee ballots until November 18th. We are linking to the page on which you can do that as well. If you are in Georgia, you can volunteer to safely knock on doors and get out the vote. You can volunteer to be a poll watcher or to monitor the processing of ballots. And then if you live out of state, you can still help. You can phone bank. You can text bank. Uh, If you want to find out more about that, you can text fair fair to seven zero seven zero zero. That's the uh, Fair Fight Action Group. And um, you can also donate to uh, Raphael Warnock and or John Ossoff as well. So there's plenty that we can all do. These two races uh, ultimately could decide what do the next two years look like for a Joe Biden presidency? We cannot pass. I don't want to overstate the importance of these races. And fortunately, I couldn't possibly do that because these races are of uh, of ultimate importance right now. So we're going to continue talking about that um, for the next several weeks and all the way through January 5th. As we get closer day by day to the much overdue removal of Donald Trump, we have to start seriously addressing the question of how to deprogram. Nearly 75 million Trumpists. This is not a trivial matter. This is not easy to do. I've said before, Trump will go, but the Trumpists will still be here. The Trumpism that has become their sort of guiding, I don't want to say guiding principles because they're, they're, it's not very principled, but their guiding ideology, that will be here. So, how do we do it? How do we deprogram these people? A retail strategy of convincing individuals that their views are misguided is just too time consuming. I had this caller to my show last week who said, David, I did it. I deprogrammed one Trumpist. And I said, yeah, well, how long did it take? And the guy said it took three hours. So as you can see, three hours times seventy five million. That's a problem. All right. It's easy and popular to say education's the solution. We have to improve education. Well, we do, but that's not going to help people already out of school. There's no doubt that. Uh, teaching critical thinking, media literacy, epistemology, starting when kids are 10, 11, 12. That would preemptively uh, insulate a lot of uh, Americans from being uh, brought into these cult mentalities. But we're talking about 75 million people, mostly who are already out of school. So fixing education won't fix them. So what do you do? If you research cults, you very quickly learn that forcibly removing people is not recommended It rarely works. You need to get people to a place where they choose to leave the cult voluntarily. What we do know is that Socratic methods of questioning, asking people what attracted you to the cult? What was going on in your life when you you know, you don't want to necessarily use the word cult here. But when when you started to say, hey, I think Trump has something for me, what was going on in your life? What attracted you to it? How would you know if the leader was lying? What would it mean to you if you realized that the leader was misleading you? How would you react? That type of Socratic interviewing and questioning can be useful. But again, we are talking small scale cults. Here we are dealing with 75 million people who are regularly being programmed by Fox News and Rush Limbaugh and the Republican Party and others, and they're being pulled further into the cult. So it's not looking great so far. One idea is that their beliefs and delusions have to have consequences that they link to their beliefs. And that last part is very key. Obviously, Trump cultism has led to more coronavirus deaths than we needed to have. We have we are worse off as far as healthcare goes. Our foreign policy is is materially worse because of, of Trumpism and the Trump cult and Trump. So there are consequences to Trumpism, but your average cultist will never link the consequences to their cult leader, in this case, Donald Trump. So one idea is actually seeing and feeling the consequences of their beliefs could be a start. But how do you do that? How you do it when we don't even have agreement about the basic facts is a real problem. And this, as you can probably tell, is such an overwhelming Herculean task That it's likely going to require multiple components and a sort of full court press approach. So education, yes, more education for young people. uh, But that is going to deal with people who are mostly not yet voters. We need to do something about current cultists. Do you have to look at the FCC and look at what can and should be done from a regulatory standpoint in terms of media? Yeah, I guess so. But I don't think you're going to solve this problem by banning Fox News. And uh, you you run into some real problems with regard to uh, suppression of speech when you do that. So I don't know how big of a part that's going to play. Another big part of this is we need to make it less appealing to be part of the cult. Lots of people get drawn into cults and conspiracy theories in the first place because they either find the cults and conspiracies better than the alternative of the real world or because people are isolated and they get a feeling of belonging that's really tough to pull people out of. So part of this is making it less seductive to be part of the cult while recognizing the underlying concerns that people have. And that's what Trump on purpose or accidentally. This is what Trump did do well in 2016 by by tricking people. Trump bamboozled people by convincing them that he had the solutions to their problems, a fear that a lot of white voters had of losing a privileged status in society. Trump said he would take care of that immigrants as the reason that you aren't making more money. Trump said he would fix it. So part of the deprogramming has to be acknowledging people's concerns, but making them realize that they've been sold the wrong solutions, a really, really important aspect of this. And even if we do all of this, we have to realize that change is slow unless it's a completely authoritarian dystopia. If you consider that the start of this cult that we see today could have been the welfare queen stories of Ronald Reagan's presidency thirty five years ago, and you understand that this has been thirty five years in the making it no longer is reasonable to think we're going to get out of it very quickly it's going to take time if you consider the start of the current republican cultism to be the civil rights movement of the 1960s then you know if it took 50 years to get into this 60 years to get into this it's going to take a while to get out one of the faster deprogrammings we've ever seen or better said maybe reprogrammings was in china during the cultural revolution under mao zedong It was a roughly 10 year period. The leftovers of of capitalism were purged and it was done brutally and quickly and quickly still meant a decade. So what I want people to understand is this isn't going to happen overnight. The fastest reprogrammings have been brutal and horrifying, like the 10 year Cultural Revolution in China. Uh, the path will be very long and it typically requires the type of commitment that two, four and six year political terms, which is what we see in the House, White House and Senate 2 four and six years. That's not a timeline that incentivizes the difficult work that needs to be done. So send me your thoughts. Send me your ideas. This is going to be a very, very long fight, which it, it, it can start the day we decide it starts. I believe it has already started to some degree. Send me your thoughts. I'm on Twitter at DPACMAN.
0: The David Pacman Show at DavidPacman.com.
1: When you see me sitting here at the microphone, oftentimes I'm wearing a shirt by a company called Teddy Stratford. And I love these shirts so much that I asked Teddy Stratford to be a sponsor of the show. And here's why I like their shirts so much. With other slim fit button up shirts, you often get this weird looking gap between the buttons where it looks kind of stretched out. But Teddy Stratford actually has a patented zipper that's hidden underneath the buttons, which secures the shirt against your chest so it doesn't look stretched. And most importantly, it just provides a nicer looking fit overall. And the entire shirt is specially designed to really improve the way your upper body looks when you're wearing it. It also has a special type of collar that prevents it from drooping down and spreading open which is another really great thing about these shirts all of these things really do a lot to make a big difference when you're looking at a shirt and that's why i like to wear teddy stratford shirts on the show go check them out at davidpackman.com/teddy the link is in the podcast notes and they'll give you 15% off your first order if you use the coupon code packman at checkout that's p a k m a n One of our sponsors today is Lucy, and they are giving my audience 20 percent off. Lucy is a company founded by Caltech scientists with only one mission, which is to help people quit smoking and vaping by offering a clean, affordable nicotine alternative. Now, many of you know, you've heard the stories. I've known several people in my life who have struggled with quitting smoking. I've seen how difficult it can be. And nicotine alternatives can be hugely helpful. Lucy offers a nicotine gum in three flavors, wintergreen, cinnamon and pomegranate. They also have lozenges which come in cherry ice flavor. Lucy is affordable. It'll ship right to your door. You don't have to go out to the store. Shipping is always free. You can buy single boxes or save with a subscription. It's the year 2020. It's time to throw the cigarettes away and get rid of the vape. And Lucy can make it easier. You'll find a ton of excellent reviews online from countless people who have used Lucy to quit smoking and vaping. Go check them out at lucy.co. That's L U C Y.co. The URL is in the podcast notes, and you will get 20% off when you use the coupon code PacMan. Quick disclaimer I'm required to give these products contain nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical.
0: The David Pacman Show at DavidPacman.com. So, I know I don't mention this often, but this is a viewer and
1: listener supported program. I would love for you to become a member of The David Pacman Show by signing up at JoinPacman.com. It is very cheap, and we do a daily extra program just for our members. You can sign up at JoinPacman.com and you can use the coupon code FRESH START, all one word, all lowercase, FRESH START. To save a bundle off of the membership of your choice at joinpackman.com, I noticed some funny posts this morning on the David Pakman Show subreddit. Of course, you can join nearly twenty-six thousand of our viewers and listeners at davidpackman.com slash reddit um, There is a very funny post that is a screenshot of O.A.N. O.A.N. is One America News. This is the alternative to Fox News that Donald Trump has been recommending. They are even crazier and they put up a delusional map of what they say is the real electoral map from this election. And it has <laughs> it has Donald Trump with four <laughs> four hundred and ten <laughs> electoral votes. And um, it uh, the headline is reports seized SCYTL data shows landslide win for President Trump. So they're going to be very, very disappointed on uh, January 20th. But uh, that is what Donald Trump is recommending. Uh, Newsmax and OAN are the recommended alternatives to Fox News that Trump is pushing people towards. Also a post reminding us that, yes, uh, 87 year old Republican Senator Chuck Grassley has tested positive for coronavirus. Now, you might remember there was this absolutely surreal picture or even might have been video, certainly pictures of uh, shortly after the super spreader event, which led to There was that short period of time where a bunch of Republicans got the virus, including Donald Trump, Senator Ron Johnson, Senator Mike Lee. Within days of being diagnosed with the virus, there was a Senate hearing at which Mike Lee, who who was covid positive, was standing above 87 year old Republican Senator Chuck Grassley at a Senate hearing with no mask talking to someone. It might have been Lindsey Graham or somebody else. And we looked and said, how does how does Chuck Grassley, if this is what's going on, How the hell does Chuck Grassley avoid uh, getting coronavirus? And indeed, 87 year old Chuck Grassley now has coronavirus. Uh, Of course, I never wish illness nor death on anybody. Statistically speaking, um, Chuck Grassley is at uh, uh, quite high risk. At the same time as a senator, he has access to very, very good health care and much like Donald Trump. got access to things which the average person would not have access to. It's certainly conceivable. Chuck Grassley would get the same. And as we know, um, the level of care that one receives can make a major, major difference in uh, uh, whether uh, who there's this there's actually this crazy story of a covid ICU where uh, one person they were so overloaded that nursing and medical attention was extremely limited but there was one patient in there that was the wife of a doctor that worked in that hospital. She was designated a so-called VIP. And for a short period of time, she was the one uh, serious covid patient that survived. So understand that health uh, access to healthcare disparities make a major, major difference when fighting this uh, with a lot of conditions. It's not just coronavirus. Uh, Chuck Grassley with coronavirus joined the discussion at David dot com slash reddit I think you're going to find this interesting. I've talked to you before about the important distinction between a TV lawyer and a courtroom lawyer. For a while now, we have been referring to Rudy Giuliani as Donald Trump's television lawyer. For a long time, he goes on TV, And he represents Donald Trump, but he defends Trump in a way that's different than what you would see in a courtroom. Many of the things that a TV lawyer can say are different than what an actual courtroom lawyer would say. You can't make the same claims in front of a judge that you would potentially be making on television. These two worlds collided and exploded in dramatic fashion this week because it was announced on Sunday or Monday that Rudy would be representing Donald Trump in court, in court in Pennsylvania, in one of these completely bogus voter fraud cases. And Rudy Giuliani actually was going to be expected to behave the way a courtroom lawyer behaves rather than a television lawyer. And what's just fascinating about that is that when Rudy Giuliani was directly pressed by the judge in Pennsylvania about whether he is actually alleging that voter fraud took place, Rudy Giuliani said, I am not alleging that this is it's so important to understand this because it's not just Rudy Giuliani. This has happened with a numerous Trump lawyers in court in filing these various briefs and motions and complaints when they've been asked, are you alleging actual voter fraud? They all say no. Um, And it's just perfect because Rudy went in with all sorts of vague claims that left leaning counties conspired to hurt Donald Trump. Well, hold on. What does that actually mean happen, though? He went in with claims that absentee voting was unfairly administered in some counties versus others. But when it came down to it, he was asked, are you alleging fraud in court? And Rudy said, no, your honor, we are not. And then he went on to say, well, we believe the process was fraudulent, which is kind of a distinction without a difference, but it's still relevant. Rudy, when put in front of a judge rather than in front of Judge Jeanine Piro on Fox News, who's a, just a TV host in front of an actual judge in a court of law, he can't actually say we are alleging specific fraud. Instead, he says, we believe the process was generally fraudulent and led to I guess what he sees as the wrong results, which is that Donald Trump lost. This is the final confirmation we needed that even they know when they allege fraud took place in public. They don't really believe it, or at least they recognize they don't have the evidence to claim that that's what took place. In front of an actual judge in a court of law. Now, Rudy wasn't exactly perfect during the court appearance. He did stop short of saying we are alleging fraud because they aren't actually. But he did at one point suggest that some kind of Democratic mafia stole the election from Joe Biden. There's no evidence of that whatsoever. Rudy also apparently committed perjury. Uh, Rudy Giuliani submitted a petition to the court in which he wrote that he is a member in good standing of the Washington, D.C. Bar Association. When in reality, Rudy Giuliani is currently suspended from the D.C. bar because get this, he didn't pay his dues to the Washington, D.C. bar. Isn't that just perfect? Trump doesn't pay his contractors and lawyers worry Trump's not going to pay them. And Rudy didn't pay to remain part of the D.C. bar, which led to him perjuring himself when he told the Pennsylvania court that he was a member in good standing of the D.C. bar. Now, that's an aside. The question is, if you are not alleging fraud, why are you here? To make general points about elections, because it sure as hell seems like you're here to try to overturn the results of the Pennsylvania election. And these lawyers that Donald Trump has working for him are not going to be able to get past any judge with a reasonable understanding of what they're doing. And so far, that's why everything is getting thrown out by court after court after court. And by the way, speaking of judges, this is why the Republican Party has been 110 percent focused pedal to the metal during Donald Trump's presidency on getting as many loyalists into federal judge positions as possible. They know that on a lot of issues, the law is not on their side, so they prepare to corrupt the law by putting in place their cronies. And I hate to admit it. They've succeeded to a great degree. I've talked about this before. Uh, Mitch McConnell, I think, is a despicable guy. If you are a Republican, you see Mitch McConnell and you recognize this is the guy who has done an amazing job of installing hundreds of judges. Oh, oh I mean, if you go pre Trump, it could even be it, Maybe it's even over a thousand. I don't know. Uh, endless judges who are going to continue ruling in a, um, a partisan way whether you've got a Democrat or a Republican in the White House, as we are very quickly going to see during the first couple of years of the Joe Biden administration, they have done a really good job. I, th- I think they're horrible. Uh, I think these judges are horrible. But if you are them, you have to look at Mitch McConnell and say this. This guy has been incredibly successful. And while the Trump scandals continued to rage, they keep putting judges in judges. They didn't even stop during coronavirus. And it is something that we will have to contend with for a long time in the United States. And listen, if they had gotten more of them in, you might have actually seen some of these court cases about supposed voter fraud uh, go in Donald Trump's favor. Maybe some still will. For now, they have not. Uh, make sure you're following The David Pakman Show on Instagram at David Pacman Show. You can also follow me at David we will take a quick break and
0: be back with much more. The David Pac-Man Show at davidpacman.com. One of our
1: sponsors is privacy.com. They're giving you $5 when you sign up for their completely free service at privacy.com slash pacman. I've been using privacy for a little over a year now. You've heard me talk about it before. It's a lifesaver and here's how it works. Takes just a couple of minutes to set up. Anytime you buy something online or on the phone, instead of actually using your real credit card number, the privacy app and the browser plugin let you give each company a randomized virtual credit card number that you create out of thin air. It'll even autofill the card number with one click. And the payment is taken out of your checking account without the merchant ever knowing your real information. So this allows you to keep your banking information secure, but also to take control of your finances. You can create up to 12 of these virtual credit cards a month. You can set spending limits. You can freeze them. You can delete them anytime you want. So when you do this, it means you're not going to be charged when you don't want to be because you can destroy the virtual card number right after using it, which for instance, I love using free trials because I know I won't be charged when the trial is over. If I use a virtual credit card number, you're keeping your identity private by not telling companies who you are. You're keeping your bank or credit card info protected against data breaches and identity theft and it's free. There's no catch whatsoever, but if you want privacy also offers a $10 a month plan. That gives you 1% cash back and lets you create 36 credit cards a month and a $25 a month plan tailored more for small businesses where you can create 60 card numbers a month and much more. But definitely go ahead and at least get started with the free plan. You'll protect your financial info. Companies can't charge you unexpectedly. And like I said, you'll get $5 to spend when you sign up at privacy.com slash Pacman. I want to let you know that our sponsor Vincero Watches is having a massive holiday sale on all of their products right now and you can take advantage of it by going to slash watch A brand new high-quality wristwatch really is the perfect way to add something fresh to your style whether it's for you or a gift for someone else. Vincero is a brand that has a serious dedication to the craft of watchmaking, which is really evident when you look closely at their watches. I wear Vincero watches myself lately. I've been wearing one from their icon automatic collection. It's the mesh matte black watch. And I love the sleek, minimalist design. Their watches are actually sold at a fair price. Their mission has always been to make a wristwatch from high-end materials but one that everyday people can afford, and that's why they have over 25,000 five-star reviews because you won't find a better-made watch for this great of a price anywhere else. You can get big holiday discounts on all of their products right now and free shipping when you go to davidpackman.com/watch. I've put the link in the podcast notes.
0: Welcome back to the David Packman show. Today I'm going to
1: be speaking with Talia Levin, who is author of the book "Culture Warlords: My Journey Into the Dark Web of White Supremacy." Uh, Talia, great to have you on. I appreciate your time.
2: Thank you. I appreciate you having me on.:
1: So you did something very interesting, which is you um, and, and, and potentially uh, harrowing which is you jumped into some of the uh, dark recesses of the Internet that I will often mention but recommend my audience not dive into. Um, And this includes uh, white supremacy, anti-Semitism and and all sorts of different areas. Talk a little bit about why you did this and sort of how you dipped your toes into this pool to begin with.
2: Yeah, so um, I'm a Jewish woman. and. I've been writing about the far right for a few years um, before the book even came out. And um, with that came a response from the white supremacist, white power community. And um, my reaction to various waves of harassment, you know, that were vehemently misogynistic, vehemently anti-Semitic, was essentially to, instead of kind of curling up and and shrinking back and, and stop talking was to dive deeper. I wanted to see who these people were, where they were coming from, how they were getting to my Twitter feed. And, um, you know, it was sort of a situation where the abyss was looking at me and I decided to gaze back and uh, drag what I saw back out into the light.
1: So what what did you find about the source of many of the the sort of hateful and trolling messages that you were getting?
2: So. I decided to take a broad view and, and look at both the development of the contemporary white power movement and um, what it looks like, how it manifests, and where they congregate. So I spent a lot of time looking at particularly an encrypted chat app called Telegram, um, and, which has like very strong free speech protections and sort of never... Bans content, really, so it's it's become kind of a thriving ground for white supremacists who particularly in twenty nineteen faced some bannings from mainstream social media like Facebook and Twitter, and so that's where I spent a lot of my book research looking into um and I found a lot of different tendencies and communities of interest within the white power movement that I spend the book culture warlords exploring.
1: Did you um, or talk, talk a little bit about how you existed in some of these spaces? I mean, did you develop a, a character, a series of characters, alter egos that that you kind of um, took on?
2: Yeah, so I didn't actually set out to write a gonzo journalism book. It's just that when you're a Jewish woman and when you've been kind of an outspoken anti-fascist for years. It's hard to get in the front door. People who are white supremacists won't grant you an interview. You know, I one of my earlier attempts was to try and get into. There's a, a sort of powerlifting based uh, white supremacist pagan cult that hmm. um, that has these solstice celebrations, and I tried to get in just as a reporter. Um, And much later, one of the guys I was talking to was like, oh, we would never let a Jew in Um, anyway. So, you know, it was hard to get in the front door. Um, But and so as a result, I found myself sort of having to get a little creative and find these backdoor routes. And that included um, making sock puppets, you know, sock puppet accounts um, to just kind of squat and listen. And in some other cases, having to be a little more proactive and inventing kind of identities from whole cloth in order to get into more private chats. And um, uh, in one case, uh, I infiltrated a white supremacist dating site, whitedate.net, you know, with a whole (laughs) character um, who didn't look like me or have my background um, as kind of a coarse Brooklyn Jew. Um, and I got uh, these forlorn white supremacists looking for love to write love letters to their ideal white wife hmm. and send them to me. And I printed them in the book and it was sort of a car crash between Nicholas Sparks and Mein Kampf. <laughs>
1: did Did you make any uh, uh, of what you would consider to be friends during this process?
2: Um. No, I mean, it's not generally my, uh, my practice to make friends with people who want me dead. Right. But, um, within my character, I mean, I had, I I, I was, I tried not to be like that active an infiltrator. You know what I mean? You don't want to be the one amping up the stochastic terror. You want to say just enough to pass and remain in the room. Um, but in one particular event, there was sort of a uh, an MMA fight being organized between pagan white supremacists and Christian white supremacists to support the uh, presidential run of a white nationalist Satanist. And so mm. I got deeply involved in the planning chats for that group and wound up talking pretty extensively to one Christian extremist um, and telling him all about how his fascist love of Christ had saved my life. Um, <laughs> just funny things to have to do from my apartment in Brooklyn.
1: <laughs> as far I'm interested in this religious component in, in your experience, kind of weaving your way through these communities, you know, we know about um, the Christian roots of the KKK as an example. But at the same time, there are many people who get pulled into white nationalism and white supremacy who are not particularly religious. How relevant was religion, w- would you say, in these different enclaves?
2: Well, the group that I was studying primarily were sort of these radicalized white power guys, right? We know that within the mainline sort of MAGA movement, which has its fascistic undertones, um, religion plays quite a large role. Um, This idea that Trump is selected by God and we must fight for him and everyone else is served Satan. Um, The group that I was speaking to tended to skew younger were a little more disaffected with religion, but what they um, really took from religion, in the case of the Christian white supremacists, there was this absolute fixation on the Crusades mm. um, as kind of a lost cause, this battle between noble white warriors and swarthy interlopers that they kind of interposed onto contemporary uh, anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim. Uh, dialogue. So it was kind of like them viewing themselves as crusaders and flying the Templar cross at racist rallies. Um, In the case of pagan white supremacists, heathen white supremacists, you had this fixation on uh, Vikings, um, this idea of white manliness, and the idea of the Norse pantheon as an indigenous white European religion. And one of the things that sort of Surprised and tickled me uh, was that many heathen white supremacists are drawn to the worship of the Norse pantheon by the idea that Christianity was started by a Jew Mm. uh, and is thus tainted by the Jewish taint forever. And so you can literally be Jesus Christ and that's not enough for some anti-Semites, which was sort of a funny discovery to make.
1: The uh, the people you came across, what portion did you get this? I mean, this is it could be just difficult to tell. But did you get a sense of what portion would be willing to sort of uh, go and and actually take violence into their own hands in the real world versus how many of them are sort of existing in these online spaces? And that's as far as they're willing to go.
2: So when I tallied up the telegram groups I was involved in, and of course, that's not The most scientific measure, but I had joined between 90 and 100 of these chats and collectively they had tens of thousands of members. Sure. Right. And one of the big problems facing researchers and journalists in this area is that it's quite simply very hard to tell which young man spewing violent and genocidal rhetoric is going to be the one that snaps. So, you know, I have a close friend who is an anti-fascist and who was several times threatened directly by Robert Bowers, who went on to allegedly shoot um, 11 Jews in the Tree of Life synagogue. And it's just very hard to tell. It's hard to tell, you know, when you're looking at this sea of essentially stochastic terror, this sort of perpetual motion machine towards radicalization and violence, who is going to be the one to snap. And that's why I talk about how the importance isn't necessarily the raw numbers, yeah, but about the tenor of the conversation, um, and you know when you are marinating in stochastic terror, marinating in racial violence, marinating in the dehumanization of your supposed racial enemies, you know this is an environment that's specifically cued to get people to snap, to radicalize, to engage in violence, to stockpile guns.
1: When I um, have interviewed former white nationalists and white supremacists, um, including, you know, folk, folks like Frank Mink and, and many others of these folks who have now become uh, anti-racist uh, advocates, they, they almost, unilat almost unanimously tell the same story about how they were pulled in, which is that they uh, sort of found um, either an attention or what they felt as support or a community where they had an absence of it typically in their family life growing up. Like that's the it's almost cliche, but it's the story they they almost all tell. Did you get any sense of at the individual level how the folks you came across ended up in these movements?
2: Yeah, I mean, particularly on the white supremacist dating site, there was often kind of a there was a segment, you know, in the bios where people describe their politics and how they came to be on a white supremacist dating site. And a lot of the stories started with YouTube. There were a lot of divorces, um, in their backstories, you know, um, there were a lot of people in the military. Um, you know, I would say that the most consistent theme was a sense of alienation. Right. And I think as we all know that that sense of alienation, lack of community, desire for purpose. It crosses socioeconomic lines. Um, It crosses geographical divides. You know, it's really a question of sort of how deep is your feeling of alienation and displacement, and that can have a lot of different causes. Um, I think it's a mistake when people say, oh, it's just toothless Cletus, you know, in his mother's basement, you know, when what I saw was really a movement that spanned geographical lines, socioeconomic lines, these were people with lives and sometimes spouses, um, sometimes people who were in college, you know, the, the the myth that everyone is sort of southern and uneducated um is really a self-absolving myth that white liberals use to say it couldn't be anyone in my neighborhood, couldn't be anyone in my school or my HOA when in fact it could. It's just a matter of people feeling lost and the white supremacist white power movement really offering you this mythos of you can become involved, you can save the white race, we will give you a sense of purpose in your life. And I think a lot of us are looking for a sense of purpose. A lot of us are feeling lost and alienated. And we all find that in different ways. Um, But that's the sort of compelling argument they make is, is here's a chance to be part of a community of people saving the white race.
1: Yeah, what's interesting about that is you know there's a similar pattern to a lot of the people that get sucked into the cult of trumpism which is believing that it will provide solutions to problems that may well be real um but but they get tricked about where the solutions are and that seems to be a kind of interesting overlap in hearing hearing you describe it.
2: Yeah, I mean I think that's true of any sort of radicalizing movement right yeah is that they look at you um look at your vulnerabilities look at what you're seeking and then become that you know love bomb you um although frankly (laughs) the tenor of conversation is quite puerile and uh often very cruel there's not a lot of love bombing going on but there is a sense of like you are a warrior you know um, there's really a regression into very toxic and narrow gender roles. This, this idea of kind of you will be a manly man, a warrior um, for the white race, um, an encouragement towards survivalism, towards stocking up guns, um, but really this sense of kind of propping up embattled masculinity and making that be part of a community that has this sort of overall, quote unquote, noble purpose.
1: The book is fascinating. It's Culture, Warlords, My Journey into the Dark Web of White Supremacy. We've been speaking with the book's author, Talia Laven. Talia, I so appreciate your time today.
2: Thank you so much. Yeah. And um, the book is available on Amazon at your local indie store, which you should please support during the pandemic and uh, everywhere books are sold. And it goes into great detail about. Not just
0: contemporary white supremacy, but it's. Roots. The David Pacman show at davidpackman.com.
1: If you love feeding your intellectual curiosity, but you're always struggling to find the time, check out one of my all-time favorite apps called Blinkist. Blinkist lets you consume an entire book on your way home from work. They take thousands of popular nonfiction books, condense each one into text or audio that you can get through in just 15 minutes and you get all of the important core ideas and information from that book. It's perfect if you don't have enough time to do all the reading you want to do or if you just want to sample a book before you buy the entire thing. I recently read a brief history of time, of course, by the great Stephen Hawking. This is a book that I have been aware of for so long and other things got in the way and it was fantastic to check it out on Blinkist. Blinkist has books on politics, philosophy, science. They have 27 different nonfiction categories and a subscription is only about eight bucks a month and you get access to the entire library but you can try it totally free and get 25% off a subscription when you go to blinkist.com/pacman that's b l i n k i s t.com/pacman
0: the david pacman show at davidpacman.com We've talked before about how there are sort of benign conspiracy
1: theories, and then there are conspiracy theories and disinformation that, when people believe them, have very, very real uh, real world consequences. And with coronavirus, the disinformation and the conspiracies have very real repercussions. If you don't accept the science and you don't wear a mask and you don't social distance, you keep having indoor gatherings, people get the virus, and some of them die. The repercussions are very real. Now, you might have heard that Utah's coronavirus numbers are exploding so badly that their Republican governor put in place more guidelines and a mask mandate mandate and explained that many hospitals are nearly full or completely full. Utah's case numbers have been spiking dramatically. They're now up to about 3000 cases a day. That's a ton for a state with only three million people in it. Deaths are also up, although not as dramatically for now. As the cases, although that could change as the hospitals are increasingly full. We know that the death rate tends to go up when that happens. Well, there are people in Utah, one of the most right wing states in the country that think it's all a lie. What I mean is they don't even believe that the full hospital is really full and certainly not with coronavirus patients. Conspiracy theorists started driving to Utah Valley Hospital in Provo, Utah, claiming that the parking lot is so empty the hospital can't possibly be full. Of covid patients. So what did they do? They didn't just stay in the parking lot. They invaded the hospital. They entered with video cameras to document what they believed would be a completely empty intensive care unit. Now, fortunately, these people did not actually get access to the ICU. That would have been just, you know, e- even more insane. But had they been able to get to the ICU, they would have found a full ICU with coronavirus patients, nurses and doctors and staff under huge strain from dealing with a full ICU and the pandemic. Now, the reason that there weren't many cars in the parking lot is because there are, number one, huge restrictions on visitors at hospitals right now because of the pandemic. Also, many of the people in the hospital with covid didn't drive themselves to the hospital because they were too sick. So they don't have cars there. Guests aren't allowed. So guests don't have cars there. That's why the parking lot seems relatively uh, uh, not full. Things are so bad in Utah that they are recruiting medical professionals from out of state to come in and help and expediting credentialing out of state medical professionals to be able to work in Utah. Imagine for a second if these people put as much time and energy into coming together to deal with the pandemic rather than invading hospitals, imagine how much better off we would be. Imagine if these people, when we learned about the virus and understood that cases were rising and how it spread, imagine if all of these so-called truthers and skeptics and deniers actually did something to help the situation rather than hurt it, like distributing masks, as an example, or figuring out, you know, a grocery delivery service, maybe for elderly folks who aren't as comfortable with ordering Amazon fresh or delivery services or whatever to get groceries delivered so those folks could stay home and reducing the number of elderly and at risk people who get the like, you I could go on for an hour just saying almost anything that they even just staying home themselves. Right almost anything they could have done other than doing this skeptic stuff and trying to invade an ICU to get video of an ICU. They expect doing nothing would be better than what they are doing. And imagine if these same people, these types of people put as much time into dealing with any societal problem like if we had the conspiracy world dealing with climate change. If we had the conspiracy world deciding, hey, you know what, we're going to eradicate hunger like anything. If the conspiracy right was helping us rather than working against us, there are so many problems that we could have solved at this point in time. And it is really tragic. And, you know, the in the same way that I talked about earlier. How do you deprogram 75, nearly 75 million Trumpists? And we talk about Trumpism as a cult and we've interviewed Stephen Hassan about uh, how Trumpism is like a cult in many ways. In that same way, um, how do you deprogram the covid people? Now, one of the things we have talked about is when cultists and conspiracy theorists start to see that their beliefs have consequences at scale sometimes that will deprogram them with covid. There's a very clear path there, right? It's I'm a denier. Relative gets sick and or dies from covid. You were deprogrammed by seeing that your skepticism at scale has has consequences and that people die. And we saw examples of that. If you think back to the Democratic National Convention, we there was a woman whose name I forget now, but who spoke very passionately about her father, who was a Trump supporter, Uh, almost to the very end, uh, didn't believe that the virus was serious, got COVID and died, and that this changed his worldview, it changed her worldview and and that of some others. It can happen. But you still saw at Trump rallies even days before the presidential election of a few weeks ago, people with uh, shirts that said, you know, my my cousin died of COVID and I still support Trump. Uh, I mean, like, you know, boisterously and extravagantly and aggressively. Um, a uh, a flaunting their ignorance, really, really sad stuff. But uh, this stuff has real consequences and we are seeing it very much so. This is kind of funny, but also sad. Uh, One of the many sham claims that the supporters of Donald Trump have made about the 2020 election is that dead people voted. Now, as more and more of these claims are investigated, more and more of these claims are being debunked. I'm going to have a voicemail for you about dead people voting. But this might come as a shock to some of you in a country of three hundred and thirty one million people. There are lots of people with the same name, even people with the same middle initial. And when you hear that, you know, one hundred and eighteen year old Joe Smith voted. But Joe Smith died 20 years ago. It might actually be 72 year old Joe Smith that voted from the same city. There's this really funny thing. So when I lived in when I lived in New York City, I was in a band, one of my my bandmates. I'm not going to give his real name so people don't go doxing him, but I'm going to give you a name that will work. Um, His first name uh, is Eddie. Now, Eddie typically would be Edward, but sometimes Eddie is short for or a nickname for Edwin. So my bandmates name was uh, Eddie A Jimenez. Okay, let's go. Let's say that, that was Eddie A Jimenez, and he once looked up how many Eddie A Jimenezes are there in New York City, and there's a whole bunch. Okay, but then he said, "Here's what. Here's more a more interesting question: How many Edwin A Jimenezes are there in New York City? Edwin being much less common, and there were eleven. So even a name like Edwin, a Jimenez. That's not the actual name. I'm just you know, modifying it so that you people don't go and try to figure out who this guy is. There were 11 people with the same middle initial even Edwin, a Jimenez in New York City. So a lot of that is what's going on with these so-called dead voters. So the Trump campaign has been alleging dead voters for a while. One such example is that Trump's campaign. And Fox News host Tucker Carlson last week alleged that a Georgia woman named Deborah Jean Christensen uh, voted while dead. The campaign and Carlson said it was fraud. Deborah Jean Christensen died last year. Now, in fact, the vote was legally cast by a living woman whose name is also Deborah Jean Christensen, born in the same year and the same month, but on a different day. Now, CNN eventually interviewed her. They went to her door. She was alive. She was a real person who was alive and voting. There's another example, which is the case of Mr. and Mrs. James Blaylock. Now Mr. James Blaylock did pass away years ago. His wife votes under the name Mrs. James Blaylock. Here she is alive and well. Take a look. He's not. voted. He didn't vote. It was you. It was
0: me. President of the United States was accusing you of voter fraud. Essentially, oh,
3: I know it, and and I knew it wasn't fraud.
0: Who did you vote for?
3: You don't have to share that. I voted for the Democrats for Biden. I see.
0: And
1: so I guess
3: I voted against the other one, really.
1: So there it is: dead voters who were actually alive. Now, I've also been accused of being dead before. Do you guys remember? This is it's sort of an aside, but years ago there was a documentary, uh, a perfectly reasonable documentary about uh, gay teens who were bullied so ferociously in school that they took their own lives. And that's a real thing. That's a very, very sad thing. But for some reason, we've not been able to figure out I was in the montage in a sort of in memoriam of uh, bullied uh, gay teens who died by suicide. And at the time, this came as a shock to a lot of people in the audience. Now, at the time, I was not a teen. I was 27 years old at the time. I was not gay and I was not bullied and I also wasn't dead, which was important to clarify. And I issued a clarification. So I understand uh, what it's like to be accused of being dead when you when you were actually alive. So this is all completely wacky. The Trump campaign is making all sorts of accusations of dead people voting. Tucker Carlson ended up apologizing for one false claim about a dead person voting. Now, even if anecdotally, some of these supposedly dead voters. Are either still alive or didn't vote. It's still worth, I I think, doing a more thorough investigation of this. And that's what the BBC did. The BBC looked at the claim that was made by the Trump campaign or people around Trump that 10,000 dead dead people voted in Michigan. That's the the, that's the top line number. Ten thousand dead people voted in Michigan. Now, as a reminder, the margin in Michigan by which Joe Biden won is about forty six thousand. So to start with, they're claiming 10,000 dead people voted in Michigan. Even if those were all Biden votes, it would not reverse the, the results. But BBC started with 10,000. Good. Then the BBC picked 31 names from the list of dead voters and said, let's research these 31 supposedly dead voters. And Eleven of the thirty one were alive. They'd call them up. People they said, "Nope, I'm alive. No problem. No, no big deal. So uh, about one third of the sample of supposedly dead voters were people who were just alive. Seventeen of the thirty one supposedly dead voters. uh, they researched and found no reason to believe that they were dead. In other words, for 17 of the thirty one people, about half of the sample Trumpists are claiming these people are dead they found no uh, death notices, no obituaries. In many cases, they found, you know, online profiles of people who are still alive and, and, you know, posting things online. There was no reason to think 17 of the 31 person sample was dead. And then they found three people of the 31 who actually are dead. But listen to this in two of the three cases, where dead people supposedly voted. It was these situations of a father and a son with the same name. And indeed, ballots were requested and returned under the father's name. But it was a clerical error. In other words, the son voted. It was registered as a vote by the father, but there was not actually a vote registered by the son. So it's not even a double vote like, yes, it's a clerical error. But it was a son voting under his father's name one time. No double voting there either. So as you can see, taking a random thirty one person sample from the supposedly ten thousand dead voters uh, very, very quickly falls apart. It's important to do this. It's important to understand the, the reality. Now let's go to the voicemail, which is related to this. We have a voicemail number. That number is two one nine two. David P. I got a voicemail from a caller who is really, really mad at me. The caller, of course, is listening to the show in the background, which is almost a requirement for some of these uh, angry phone calls. And they claim I am lying. Lots of people voted while dead. Lots of dead voters, and uh, they're just really upset with me. Take a listen to this.
3: I'm not sure if David. It's a shame lying on television. The facts are absolutely the facts. I mean saying that dead people don't vote, I have two friends that have already filled out the. First of all,
1: in, in a literal sense, dead people don't vote. Obviously that's not even what we're talking about is false votes being cast for dead people, but dead people, how is it a fact that dead people vote? If they're dead, they can't vote?
3: They worked and had a notary um, sign it, affidavit. They did. Their grandmother has been dead for four years and she voted um, and several other people. So you're lying to the public on television. I don't you know, I don't usually watch this program, but that makes me think you're either a puppet. Right. Or interested in just false narratives. Right. Uh, but either way, I don't know. If somebody should allow somebody to blatantly lie on television mm. like this. It's just sad. Anyway, I, I expected better or at least I shouldn't. Um, some of these people on television, like yours, like this program, right, are more interested in hate than reality.
1: Right. Um, truth
3: will always set people free. Oof. Um, anyway, that's what I have to say. I just was watching and I thought this was an insane statement to make. Uh, <laughs> and there were definitely legal actions going on.
1: Yeah. I mean, listen, So, so we have to understand. Um, this is kind of how they get you. They gish gallop you and they say, listen, there's a, there's affidavit. This is exactly what the Trump campaign did. Uh, Kaylee McEnany holding up all of these affidavits, you, affidavits aren't actual proof of anything. Um, and when you the, the, the way to analyze claims of supposedly dead people voting is you do what the BBC did. And the BBC started with the claim in Michigan of 10,000 dead voters. They took a sample. They figured out um, a bunch of those people are alive. Um, A bunch of those people, there's no reason to think they are dead. Some of the dead people voting were were sons voting and the votes due to clerical errors being credited to their fathers. You know, when someone says my friend has an affidavit about his grandmother voting, we don't know anything about it. It's an anecdotal claim about one vote. uh, And even if true, would would be meaningless in the broader context of the election. But we've got to be really careful, guys. We can't fall for this stuff. And there's a lot of people out there that that depend on. Um, you falling for baseless lies and uh, we, we've all got to protect ourselves from that. We have a great bonus show. We will talk about which recounts will happen and which ones will, will will not. We will talk about Speaker Pelosi round two and also the fiasco happening in South Dakota with their Republican governor and coronavirus. those stories and more. On today's bonus show, grab a membership at joinpacman.com, and I will see you then.